Hello, woodworms. I'm Ray Defterius, and this is the Hand Tool Book Review, the podcast for people who love to woodwork and love reading about woodworking too. Well, has the world gone mad since the last time I recorded a podcast? I, I really don't know what to say, only to extend my sympathies to anyone affected either personally or to loved ones by what's happening in the world with COVID-19 at the moment. At a personal level, it you know, really felt very easy just to crawl up into a hole and kind of ignore the rest of the world. And I must be honest, I wasn't really feeling very keen to get out and record another podcast. Fortunately, during the last couple of weeks, I've actually got some really nice messages from people who've taken the time to write to me and share their thoughts with me. And I really appreciate that. And it was quite motivating. And I thought I'd get back on the bus as it were today and go with one of my favorite books. In particular, I'd like to shout out to Peter Marshall. Thanks very much for your mail. Um, your book suggestions, The Minimalist Woodworker by Vic Teslin, Working Wood by Paul Sellers 1 and 2, Made by Hand, The Unplugged Workshop, those are all great suggestions. Uh, the Workbench book is one I intend getting to quite soon because I think that anyone starting with the series, that might be top of their mind. And The Essential Woodworker is sitting there wrapped in plastic on the shelf, definitely another one I want to get to. So thanks very much for sending me your mail. It was great to, it was great to read it. Likewise, many of you have commented on Instagram photos. It's always fun. I like sharing some of what I'm doing at a personal level and uh, great to have any feedback from you guys on that. So anyway, have you ever been curious as to what it was like in the 19th century to really work on the ground in a cabinet shop? Do you want a journey to a time of hard glue and deal where finished pieces were carried by journeymen to the house of the buyer? Perhaps you just want to read what is possibly the earliest written record of an apprenticeship. Today's book is an anonymous tale, first published in 1839, but the nature of the text is that it was probably written sometime earlier. Originally planned as one of a series, The Joiner and Cabinet Maker is truly unique in that it's told in the narrative style and we get to follow our hero Thomas at the beginning of his career and are wary not to befall the fate of Sam, his lazy and incompetent companion. Before we get into the book, I'd like to thank Henry Ray for becoming a patron. It was really nice to get notification that he'd subscribed, and Henry, I'm glad you're finding value in the series. The Join and Cabinet Maker is published by Lost Art Press, and as usual, I'd suggest that you buy this from them directly on their website. Be careful, there are two editions of the book that were printed. One is a copy of the text alone, it's printed in a special edition small format. The other one includes significant additional material as well as background and context of the time, practical information on building the projects in the book, and I'd really recommend that you get this version. In particular, check the version if you find a cheap copy for sale online. Joel Moskowitz was the passionate researcher behind the republication of the book, and I think that like him, you'll enjoy the fact that the book is aimed at an aspiring or a novice woodworker. Because of this fact, the book is pretty unique. Most books published at the time would have been expensive directories for purchases by affluent cabinet makers. So while Thomas Chippendale's work was justifiably popular, because of the assumptions it makes, it is very difficult to gather anything about the working practices of the common joiner. These assumptions would be common knowledge to the cabinet maker of the time, and publishers were not going to waste valuable space in a book by stating the obvious. 
The joiner and cabinet maker, however, was part of a series that made use of cheaper printing technology and was designed to bring a series of books on potential careers to the teenager looking to start in the work world. It was an ambitious series and does not seem to have been particularly successful at the time, as shown by the decline in the number of titles in the series and increasingly smaller advertising footprint. Nonetheless, while not a commercial success, we have a beautiful preserved account of an apprentice cabinet maker's daily life. Because of who it was targeted at, we get one of, if not the only, contemporary description of work practices in an early 19th century village workshop. I previously reviewed the village carpenter that was written at the onset of industrialization. This book takes us back even further to when aspiring to be an apprentice cabinet maker was not faced with a bleak future. Consequently, it is more upbeat and optimistic. You get the sense that if you work hard and are diligent, this would be a respectable career that would be both rewarding and economically viable. It's worth noting that unlike in the United States, where mechanized factories drove out the hand workshop, Britain had commercial workshops without any power tools of any kind, even in London, at least until the Great Depression. Some of the supplemental material in the first 44 pages is background, its history, which describes in some detail the sources for the books, as well as historical text. I found the section to be full of nuggets. You get enough of a sense about how the book came to be published, its intended audience, and its success, or, well, rather lack of commercial success. But there's a lot of information on the social context of the book, the adoption of power tools and sawmills, and the role of specialisation. Like Aldrin Watson's Country Furniture, this book is best considered against typical village background. How Wickham is mentioned in chairmaking in the book, and I did a bit of research on that. In this region of the UK, by 1880, they were making over 4,700 chairs a day in over 150 dedicated workshops. It's staggering to read that in 1873, they received an order for 19,200 chairs over and above normal production, and they fulfilled this in a couple of weeks. You can bet if Thomas had been in High Wycombe in 1873, he would have been making Windsor chair spindles at an incredible rate, and would have had no chance to do the projects that are as varied as those described in the book. I think that's the benefit of the book. Today's hobbyist is generally not specialising or looking to produce high volumes, so I felt a personal and tangible link with the past when I read this book. It was easy for me to imagine walking the path in Thomas's shoes. I could draw in an analogue to my first boxy cabinet work, which was completed three years ago. They were typical butt joints and pretty poor when it comes to 90 degree corners. This had a resonance with Thomas's first packing box, although, to be sure, Thomas seemed better prepared for the task than I was. As he progresses to the school trunk, there's a certain thrill in reading about his improved joinery and dovetailing technique, as this is a skill I'm currently working on. And I guess there's a somewhat aspirational following of the final project in the book. I haven't made a chest of drawers yet, but perhaps 2020 is the year. Funny to think that that's pretty much two centuries after Thomas. If you're interested in it, the beginning has some detail about how the apprenticeship worked in practice and the range of conditions that could be applied to apprenticeship and journeyman work. If you find this fascinating, suggest you do a Google search on the modern-day German journeyman tradition, the Waltz as it's called, where they spend three years and one day hitchhiking, working 
and acquiring skills in traditional garments. My mind was completely blown by this, and I'll leave a link in the notes to the relevant Wikipedia page. It's almost enough to make me want to pack off and go to Europe. Almost. Right now, I'd miss the wife and kids, and I'm not sure travel is advisable. The final part of the introduction gives some context on the tools of the time. Due to improvements in metalworking, the improved buying power of the middle class and the transport network of sea canals and rivers, tools were relatively standardized. And while by no means cheap, they were affordable in the context of being a lifetime investment, and against the backdrop of a relatively small toolkit. Having just ordered a few wooden side beads and common molding planes on eBay, I'm reminded that a few saws, chisels, three bench planes and some measuring tools were the standard toolkit of the journeyman. And bear in mind that these were carried on your back from town to town as you sought to expand your skills. One of the things that strikes you right from the start of the book is a completely different attitude to materials and resources. By the third or fourth page we are told our even shavings from the workshop are sold or used for fuel, and there's a description of what mudlarks do. It's sobering in a world filled with throwaway consumerism, and it's a world faced with different challenges. In a world without insurance, a clumsy apprentice in a shop full of flammable material could literally see someone else's life work go up in flames. It's no wonder that one of the first jobs is looking after the glue pot and carefully cleaning away shavings. While looking for tools and useful scraps, of course, that might have been covered by those shavings. These scraps prove to be important, and the apprentice is urged to use his spare time practicing his joinery on these offcuts, possibly by using a journeyman's tools, if he'd been particularly helpful. Then it's back to work straightening nails and turning the grindstone or sharpening irons at the wall of stone. And at this point I'll highlight why you want the lost art version, rather than the text-only version. While we have a pretty detailed view of the process of using the grindstone in a couple of pages in the text, the author's context for this highlights the modern experience versus the historical. I found the additional notes about the type of stone of the grindstone, the comparison of time to sharpen a chisel, and other interesting trivia to be very informative. In this case there's close on two pages of notes, talking about topics as diverse as hollow grinds and info from Charles Holtzuffel's work in the 1840s detailing the types of stones used. I suggest that while the story is well written and timeless, the additional information and context provides a far richer reading experience. 20 pages in, and we're admonished to measure twice and check that they agree. Thomas is in fact taught to work out theoretical measures in his head, and then to check how these tally against the physical totals which he's laying out. It's a lesson I guess we all learn in our own way. At this point you might be wondering about the title, and why there's a distinction between a joiner and a cabinet maker. A joiner, by definition, would make items such as kitchen tables, and work with deal, oak and ash. Deal in this context means a softwood, pine or fir, cut to standard dimensions of 9 inch wide. A cabinet maker, on the other hand, would be working in rosewood, mahogany, and making items such as writing desks and fancy chests of drawers. But let's pause for a moment and take one look at the isometric plans that are included for the first project. Before jumping in with Thomas as he begins his first real test, making a packing box in an afternoon, where the senior craftsmen are too busy to fulfill an urgent order. This comes at about the two-year mark of the apprentice career. It's the first real rite of passage in the book. After a discussion about dimensions with the master, 
we get a really instructive walkthrough of the process. Anyone familiar with hand tools will smile as they recognize the steps that Thomas follows. And likewise, I'd suggest that there's some tips for all of us in his work. While we might not use a chalk line for marking as he does on his rips, there are certainly some timeless lessons about layout. One of the things I like about the book is that the project Thomas builds are covered in a deep dive in the text. If you knew nothing about hand tools, the book takes a step-by-step -step approach to the subject and you'll certainly develop an appreciation for the process. I particularly enjoyed the tips and tricks as it were. The way you can optimize knots in wood, suggestions for how much space to leave when ripping, essential tools for the process and getting an edge joint flat. Thanks to Chris Schwarz, there's been a resurgence in the use of nails, and if you're interested in some detailed instruction on how a responsible apprentice clenches nails, it's covered in some detail. All in all, there's about 15 pages of narrative on the process, and while some sections, like the sharpening section, might be a bit tangential to the box, I'm sure you'll find the whole section more than comprehensive. Then we move on to the second project, which is a school box, and this has a decent step up in skills. In fact, it begins Thomas working on his dovetails. It's interesting that this project is partly because of the customer requesting Thomas, and there's definitely a consistent theme in the book that proposes that you'll advance further if you work hard and are shown to be going the extra mile. Some of the footnotes highlight that this might not be the case, and I just finished reading the memoirs of a Victorian cabinet maker. I can attest to the fact that this might be a somewhat idealized portrayal of things. James Hopkinson in his book has a clear memory of the way a journeyman would extort a shilling out of him for beers each time they allowed him to do something new or taught him a new technique. And yet I smiled when I read the following quote on the second project. I think it's a sentiment most of us can agree with. And now for dovetailing the corners, says Thomas, half afraid to attempt so large a joint, for as yet he has practiced only on smaller pieces. But with the same care and attention which make a good joint with small pieces, will also with large ones. There's some good advice from Chris and Joel here in the footnotes, where they give some interesting views on the depth of gauge lines and suggestions on how to aim for these with hand-cut dovetails, particularly with regard to modern wheel gauges. There's some decent advice on pursuing some saw practice, which if you heed it, might let you get well on your way to becoming an old hand, like the one in the book, of whom Thomas said, The really good workman, by long practice, will make even a large dovetail so exactly in the first instance as to have none of this fitting to do, and to be able to drive the joint up at once. But for a young hand like Thomas, it is very well to make a good dovetail at last, after some trouble in easing and fitting. Much better than to cut the pinholes too large at first, or too small, and then to split the wood by driving the joint tight in a hurry. The first time I read the book, at a time when dovetails were far over a distant horizon for me, I did not notice the advice on where to position the joints on a case site. Now as I work on a project requiring 24 inch panels, this piece of advice is certainly timeless. There's a good tip on how to close up the joints and dovetails. I'll lead you to read it and discover it on your own. Suffice it to say, by going back to a book like this, which is written by an experienced hand tool woodworker, I'm sure that the reader will learn something new. I found it interesting that dovetails are considered a beginner joint and that the mortise and tenon is brought up later in the book as a joint that is used as we approach cabinet maker status. After the completion of this project, we are told how Thomas's circumstances are approved in the shop, and how he comes to be regarded as a valuable member of the team. 
in spite of the work pressures that are brought on by the pace of work, it's clear that doing good work, carefully, is prized in the workshop. Footnotes abound, and we're off to a more substantial piece of work as Thomas builds a trunk for school. For anyone who's built a Japanese toolbox with a sliding tool, this project will feel very familiar, although the section on the hardware deals with some of the peculiarities of hinges of the time. There's some new tools introduced here, and I like the pace of the book as we get into the nitty-gritty of construction. Again, I'd suggest that you'll pick up some tips that are relevant to you. You'll spend some time pondering the footnotes, whether that's an observation on social status, a type of tool, or a work practice. The book's richer for these interludes, and it's why, even though this is an audio version, I'd recommend you buy a physical copy and consider it fireside reading. There are interesting detours in the story as the author highlights tools, techniques, processes and philosophy. And once you've read the book, I'm sure you'll agree that the book was not a commercial success because of the economic and literacy framework of the time in which it was sold. The quality of the writing is engaging, and it's sad that the book did not enjoy more widespread circulation and success. The final project, one that straddles the joiner and the cabinet maker, is a set of drawers. The realm of the cabinet maker, mahogany and rosewood, veneer and fancy embellishments, is really only touched on in this section. It's really more of an equivalent of a country carpenter, working with wood such as oak, pine and fir. It's a distinction that bears some thought, and even for a hobbyist I'd ask the question of what type of woodworker you're aspiring to be. Cabinet making gets a lot of love in popular magazines, and by its nature it's the most intricate and exquisite joints that get highlighted on Instagram. It's an easy trap to fall into, one where you're permanently disillusioned by your production versus the best artisans on a planet of 7 billion of us. Maybe you want to aspire a bit lower. Why not aspire to be a competent joiner, not a cabinet maker? Someone who's acquired all the basic joints and who regularly makes affordable, functional furniture. Country furniture, if you will. I'm in no doubt that the value of a simple dovetail box in a world of soulless machine furniture is far higher than we give it credit for. The set of drawers expands on the first project, and there's a good indication of what a joiner would do. The project Thomas builds, and how this would differ if the project was veneered and embellished. Even though I haven't done any veneer work, it's an interesting section, particularly with the author's pointers about which surfaces require the best woods. There's a few final pieces of sage advice, and we're at the end of the book, as it was published. There's a small addendum, with a section on more modern tools, but these tools fall into the realm of the experimental as far as I'm concerned. Not many of them have stood the test of time. Skip it, or skim it, as you will. And it's at this point in the text that I'm going to leave it for today. The authors have really done an incredible job of taking each one of the projects and going through those in terms of pictures, techniques, tools, and basically giving you all of the skills you'd need to build the projects in the book. I think this is one of the wonderful things about the book. You can really dive in and get into Thomas's head and go and make the projects. I really wanted to make at least one of the projects before I gave this review, and logically I was going to start with the first one. The world kind of went crazy and my frame saw build uh, took a lot longer than I thought it was going to do. So the reason for leaving at this point is I think we've covered the text here quite well. I'm going off to build the packing box this week and I'll come back next week 
and give you a more detailed review of the remaining sections of the book, tell you my experiences with those, and share my successes or my failure in making the packing box. So Woodworms, I'd just like to leave you with a special message at this time. Um, COVID-19 is making our lives very bleak. The sun will rise again. And while we're in this time, I think we can all be judged by who we're being kind to and who we reach out to. No matter your circumstances, I'm sure there's someone around you that is in a much worse place. Check on your neighbours, phone your folks and your friends, and most of all, be safe. I don't think taking any risks at this time is something that makes any sense at all. I also truly believe that once this pandemic is finished, we'll have a newfound appreciation for how much smaller this world is than we think it is, how fragile it is, and what is really important in all of our lives. So I wish you all of the best. I hope you're safe. hope your loved ones are safe and that you have a good week ahead of you and that in your particular circumstances, things start to get better soon. As usual, if you've got any suggestions for me, drop me an email at handtoolbookreview at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, this week I'm just going to suggest that you recommend it to somebody who's stuck at home and really doesn't know what to do with their time. Hopefully in some small way I can just help take your mind off what's going on around you. <laughs>